When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast with literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. I'm the author of How to Be a Grown-Up and The Sisterhood, and my very first novel, Insatiable, a story for greedy girls, is coming out on the 11th of February 2021. It's the story of Violet, broke, broken-hearted, vulnerable, and what happens when she starts to fall for a glossy, glamorous grown-up couple who might be offering her a dream job, a dream life, alongside some seriously sexy adventures. Marion Keyes says it's extremely funny, touching and wonderfully refreshing on women and sexual desire. Dolly Alderton says it's as filthy as it is funny. You won't be able to put it down. Insatiable will be available online and from bookshops. And there is a limited number of special signed editions available from Waterstones for your book listeners to pre-order. If you're a regular listener and you've already pre-ordered, thank you with all my heart. I love you. It really is the best possible way for you to support your book. Now, on to today's guest. Writer and comedian Adam Kay doesn't really need an introduction, but let's give him one anyway. His book, This Is Going To Hurt, his hilarious and moving and devastating account of his time as a junior doctor made him a household name. He's the patron saint of 2020, if 2020 has been the year of recognising, appreciating and fretting over the NHS. He's won four National Book Awards and his first children's book, Kay's Anatomy, a complete and completely disgusting guide to the human body has just been released. We talked about the history of the fart joke, casting Sandy Toxvig to play the human brain, and why we really need to stop reading on the toilet. So congratulations on Kay's Anatomy. How are you feeling about it all? Yeah, it's had, I think it's had, a good, it's had a good start. Yeah, just don't really know what's going on at all in general at the moment. That's very uh, much... The theme of 2020. I saw something on Twitter that really made me laugh. Um, A very um, grumpy, angry man was complaining, I think, because Kay's Anatomy talks about where the clitoris is and says something like, that's useful information for me, but not for a child. Yeah, that was really extraordinary because, first of all, obviously, uh, all the stuff about reproduction we've done with loads of input from sex ed experts and the whole book is done in discussion with curriculum experts just so we got it right and also the fact of the matter is not only is his daughter already learning this stuff at school but it's crucial that they do because we know that it isn't just important information 
but um, God forbid that kids, you know, ever have to report abuse. We know that people who know more about their anatomy are more likely to report it and more likely um, to adequately explain what's been going on. So, but yeah, I mean, all publicity is good publicity. And uh, most of the replies to that tweet were people saying, oh, I should get this book, get this book for my kids. I think lots of adults have been buying the book. And, uh, and I mean, I don't expect everyone to, adults to know what's in the book. In fact, when I sent, sent the book off to um, friends who are doctors, to um, to do fact checks on this and check I hadn't missed anything or said anything totally bananas. Every single one of them pointed out facts that they hadn't they hadn't known as doctors because I mean there's a lot of the body to to know about and kids will doubtless ask a lot of questions. We can't expect everyone to remember what they may or may not have learnt in GCSE biology. Do you have a favourite fact? Is there anything thrillingly weird and clever our bodies do that we don't know about? Sorry, that's, that might be something you've been asked a lot. No, no, no. Um, I mean, I, I, I love talking about uh, the body facts um, because, I mean, they're so... There's basically so many of them. What's my favourite? Um, the, the one that the doctors never never knew about was the fact was the existence of something called gound g-o-u-n-d which is um the sleep that you get in your in your eyes which is basically sort of um dried up mucus and uh a bit dried up tears and a bit of dead skin cells but it's got a name and normally during the day we're blinking all the time our, our you know our eyes are washing themselves and it and it doesn't accumulate but yeah it's got an it's got a name you spend a year of your life on the toilet um you spend a month of every year blinking your your heart pumps seven thousand liters of blood a day which is about 90 baths worth. Don't do that. Um, your blood contains gold. Oh! Not much. I mean, it isn't a, isn't a viable sort of career. Uh, oh, God. Uh, I can see the adverts you'd, you'd now. Cash to, for blood. <laughs> you'd have to, I think, take a whole football stadium's worth of people to get enough blood to make like a signet ring or something. Um, if you unfolded your brain, it would be the size of a pillow. Um, the saliva you produce in a day would fill two cans of coke. The longest ever fart was three minutes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot in there, and um, I mean, in the book, uh, I've majored on the disgusting stuff quite a lot because I want kids to uh, to read it and you like it. You know your target audience. <laughs> um, but also in a sort of ninja learning thing it does still have absolutely all the human biology that they need to know talking about spending a year of our lives on the toilet and i would wonder whether readers perhaps spend more than a year of their lives on the toilet maybe well they shouldn't they should you shouldn't read on the toilet because you're more likely to get hemorrhoids by spending unnecessary time on the toilet. So uh, spend the requisite amount of time on the toilet and take your book through to the bedroom or the living room and, uh, and finish a reading then. That is the health tip that our listeners desperately when need. A, <laughs> when I was a medical student, the um, gastroenterologist, um, the, you know, the, the gut doctor, who I was, I was training under, would say how every time he went to a friend's house, he would sweep all the books out of the toilet and tell them the damage they were doing. So I'm not quite at that level, but uh, that is my public service uh, announcement for your book. What kind of reader 
are you? Like, when do you read and what's your relationship with books like? I have never, I can't really say this, it's embarrassing, but I've never really been a huge reader. When I got my first book deal for This Is Going To Hurt, I was very conscious that I wasn't the right person to write a book because, you know, I hadn't done any English or anything since GCSE and I associated books with being what other clever people did who like read much more than I did. And, um, and in fact, it took me a while of the, the publisher sort of banging on at me to, you know, to write it. to ask me to, to sign that uh, before, I actually, before I actually agreed. But what I did do is I, um, I bought a big load of books about how to write and I read a big load of blogs and I listened to a big load of stuff. They all disagreed with each other about how you should uh, do it. Interestingly, none of the people who were writing books about how to write books, which seems to be a huge industry, uh, seemed to have any success whatsoever in, in writing books. But anyway, I remember this Somerset Maugham quote. You might know about uh, there are three rules, uh, three golden rules for writing a novel but unfortunately, no one knows what they are. Um, <laughs> so they all disagreed, apart from one single point, which was it's all about reading. Read, 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 you know. And I was like, oh, no. Well, this, this uh, reaffirms all of my concerns because I'm probably like, I read like most people do. I get some books at Christmas. I occasionally, you know, see something that catches my eye in the, the window of a shop mostly read on holiday sometimes read at bedtime but often don't because I'm just knackered after work so I've never been like a mega mega reader I'm now reading more than I've ever read uh, because people send me books all the time and lots of them look fascinating lots of them I just feel very guilty and lots of them are written by my friends so I have to read so um yeah I'm a I'm a I'm a crap reader and actually when I was putting the book together because I was assembling diary entries and just sort of twiddling with them rather than starting from scratch. I deliberately didn't read anything that I might inadvertently nick. So like I adore David Sedaris, Nora Ephron, Alan Bennett, and you know, those, those sort of people who tell the stories of their lives like that, Bill Bryson. And I sort of made sure that I, you know, I stayed away from all of that in case I unwittingly wrote a David Sedaris tribute act. <laughs> I think that is incredibly interesting. And I'm always really excited when someone says, I'm not really much of a reader, because I think that, but yeah, you know, as you say, that's how so many people read. And I think Reading is a new and sort of terrible form of, you know, wellness. I've always been a reader, but I think it is made to feel like, oh, it's that grown-up homework that will never, ever leave you. But I suspect, and this sounds really sycophantic, but the reason why this is going to hurt struck such an enormous chord and has been, you know, such a huge success is obviously the the writing is, is so brilliant and it, it's so so universal, but also you were able to write a book knowing how good a book had to be to get through to the non-reader for the person who only perhaps feels drawn to read a couple of books a year you know as if I, I would say you're a discriminating reader I, I mean there's maybe something in that I, I know one of the things I deliberately did was kept it in small chunks because I know I've got a very short attention span 
as a reader. And, you know, if I'm reading in, in bed, which is now when I do uh, a lot of my reading, you know, there'll be the sort of, I'll flip forward to see how long the next chapter is to see if I've got the time, wakefulness and will to live to, to do another one. Um, and I think there's something that makes it slightly Moorish with the little, little chunks of, of diary. And also, you know, I sort of, I guess I write as I, as I speak, it's relatively unfussy language. So, yeah, I don't know, whatever, whatever I did, I accidentally got it right rather than deliberately. So what have you been reading that has really surprised you? Uh, what have you found sort of unexpectedly propulsive? I read Mark Watson's new book, which is called Contacts. And this falls into the category of books written by friends, which, uh, as I'm sure you'll agree, the most nerve wracking books to read because you have to read them and then you sort of have to be nice um and this was one that I really loved um it was really interesting and and well written it was about you never know what counts as a spoiler but given this is on the back cover and the and like the first and second pages I'm probably happy spoiling the fact that a guy gets on a train from London to Edinburgh and sends a, a message out to all of his contacts that he's going to take his own life. And it's the story of, you know, of what happens there. And it's, you know, it's called contacts, it's sent to his contacts, but it's actually a story about, you know, the contacts we have in life and friendship and loneliness and social media and, I thought for a time of peculiar isolation, it was quite a, it was quite a timely book. Also, it was a, it's obviously the heaviest of subjects, but it was dealt with with an incredible lightness of touch. And I just thought, and it was very cleverly done. It was, I, I was about halfway through and I, and I suddenly realised, oh, wow, this would have been really, really difficult to write. The way it, 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 it basically tells his story through flashback and through the present day of all the various people in his life. And it, and it comes together in, in a really clever way that I didn't notice at first and until I sort of thought about it as a writer. That sounds really compelling. And I think that's a really interesting idea that we know so many people in a way that's, I guess, peripheral. Um, for want of a better word, people that we sort of like and love in a an abstract, quite two-dimensional way, but and we sort of touch hundreds and thousands of lives without really touching them. And I think feeling a little bit responsible for everyone, but also a little bit too exhausted to do anything about it. <laughs> yes, lockdowns meant that I've made contact with a lot of people I probably wouldn't have spoken to in peacetime um like they they're you know they would appear on my facebook or something and i'd be like oh i should just i should just zoom them we should just catch up for for half an hour or an hour and you know the sort of people who i probably wouldn't uh no offense to them you know sort of go out of my way to uh to have dinner with or you know or, or you know, give over a whole evening to, but it was nice to it was nice to spend half an hour with them. And I suppose you know, when all of the the friction is taken away, the having to leave your house and get to their house or get to wherever, and you know, book somewhere and go home from it and do that planning. That's quite a um, 
it changes things I think doesn't it when you can just purely enjoy someone's company albeit through a screen it does and whilst lockdown has obviously been hugely isolating for for lots of people hopefully for for others it's allowed them to to communicate more and like his book there's a lot of social media on it and I found myself wondering if social media is more isolating or if it's more connecting I suspect the book is intended to make you ask that that question I always wonder when I'm um, when I'm reading a a book and I think of a, a like a theme that I've spotted if the author ever meant that to be a theme and I know that because I always suspected in like GCSE English when we were reading, you know, whatever book we were being forced to read and we were being, you know, had to do an essay on the, the theme that colour plays in The Great Gatsby or something. And I was thinking, did it really mean that to be a theme <laughs> or have you just made that up because you're an English teacher? And then my first book's been now sort of read enough that it's, it seems to have, uh, you know, appeared on people's essays and occasionally people contact me because it's quite easy to find an author these days on you know it's easier to get in touch with me than uh, than Scott Fitzgerald um <laughs> they'll try and cheat on their homework by sort of sending me a note saying you know what did you mean by x y and z or you know the common theme of something or other and I'm like yeah really didn't mean that at all no <laughs> just you're reading stuff <laughs> into it that wasn't there in the first place you're in good company because I heard a story once about that happening with Alan Bennett and that I think something he'd written was used as sort of like an English literature analysis and someone wrote to him begging for like a, a good quote they could use for the exam and he said look just make anything up and I'll put my name to it if anyone checks I'll say yes of course I said that. <laughs> Um, you mentioned Alan Bennett before and uh, David Sedaris and Nora Ephron and um, Bill Bryson. Are there any books there or pieces of writing that you found at a formative time in your life or that you remember discovering and being excited by? Alan Bennett was the first person I read who made me realise that writing could be funny and silly and involving and engaging because as one of the world's non-natural sort of readers most of the reading I'd done was reading that I'd been forced to do and if you force anyone to do anything they're probably not going to enjoy it. It's why I think that um, it's one of the reasons that this kids book case anatomy happened because um, I think kids aren't interested enough in the human body, even though I think it's fascinating because they're forced to sit down on an uncomfortable chair and hear about it. But uh, Lady in the Van, I read and I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, I, I like reading. I like reading this at least. There's relatively little funny stuff written or there certainly was wasn't when I was 18. I don't know if that's hugely controversial or maybe a better way of putting it is I always found the bar for what was meant to be funny was set relatively low. A book would be described as laugh out loud and I wouldn't be able to even work out which bit I was meant to be laughing out <laughs> loud. At. I've always been very drawn to the funny and so all of those names that I mentioned Bryson, Sidaris, Nora Ephron, Nora Ephron particularly, 
um, Alan Bennett are people who have made me laugh out loud, which is that's, that's just the the highest praise that I can give to give to a, an author if they if they make me if they make me do that. I think there's a lot more comic writing now, and it happens more often now. But certainly, I mean, I wish that at school we'd have been, you know, on the on the list of things we were forced to read. There was some lighter material because I think it shouldn't just be about interpreting Brighton Rock. Yeah. The Tempest, it's, which are, you know, doubtless brilliant things. But I think part of the role of teaching English should be to get kids obsessed with reading in a way that they slightly failed to with me. And I'm now 20 years on sort of... <laughs> learning learning to love reading i love jane austen but when you're sort of a preteen and reading at school she is presented as like the last word in hilariousness and literature and you do <laughs> have to look for it you know like if, if this is supposed to be you know rolling on the floor rip roaring funny then yeah. i give up but i remember yeah. when i was a kid um my mum and dad are huge victoria wood fans as am i <laughs> and they had the books of the plays and i used to memorize those and it was seeing because obviously you give so much credit to, you know, the performance and, you know, she's amazing and Julie Walters is amazing. But just seeing the way she uses language and how it works written down and hearing those rhythms in your head. You know, I love that. Things like that really made me want to read. Yeah. Um, no, I'm enormous uh, Victoria Wood fan. In fact, I've got the I've got the biography on my on my bedside table where Have you ready started? to read. I'm excited, but also I'm a bit terrified as well in the way that I want... <laughs> her to be in in the way you know so I've, I've got this very intimate and special relationship with this incredibly famous woman who had billions of fans and is now very sadly dead and i i don't want that relationship to change no i mean i read i read a review of it um which made me much more excited to uh to read it than i than i than i even was before so um uh it's told with love and i know the audio book was recorded um by loads of her, her her friends and her and her colleagues, which makes me think it has to be a loving. Um, I, actually, I listen to talking about audiobooks. I think audiobooks might now be the way I consume books the most. When I was like driving to gigs and things, I've been on this sort of perpetual. I don't know if it's a book tour or if it's a stand-up comedy tour or whatever it is. Um, sort of standing on stage and sort of reading out from my book. Um, audio books are, you know, are, are a godsend for passing the uh, passing the drive to Newcastle. Is it reading? It is reading. It's, it's definitely reading. reading. I think. Yeah, and so that's you know, audio books have have definitely increased my my reading. What makes you reach for an audio book? Is it just a book you want to read, or do you think there's a difference between? what's fun to read and what's fun to listen to if something's read by the author i think that's for non-fiction that certainly makes me uh, makes me more likely to uh, to use up my uh, my audible token on it um, <laughs> precious credit and i don't know i mean there are some audiobooks that are terrible because they've been badly narrated which is i guess the the, the risk that you the risk that you you take because at least when I read a book myself to myself, I know how bad the narration is. You know, I've, I've, 
but less so recently actually there seems to be in the last couple of years much more of an effort to make the audiobook like a separate and distinct bit of publishing mm. in fact i mean there, there there are some books where i've where i've bought both oh like what like the alan partridges ah oh, um, yes where i read the book and loved the book and then someone said have you listened to the audiobook and i was like no i've read, i've read the book and uh, they said no no do it do it do it and and i did and I mean, they're just a whole new new level. It is a new dimension. The one, what's uh, where he does the footsteps of my father walk? Because yeah, I, yeah, I was yeah, trying yeah. to listen to that while I was running, and I just struggled so much to not think that it was me with a big tent on my back, like going down a tall <laughs> carriageway. It was a little too immersive, but it was great for the for the the book I've just done, this kids' book. I think out of mostly laziness, uh, so I didn't have to read the whole thing. Uh, we sort of reimagined every chapter. It goes sort of organ by organ through the body, and we imagined every chapter as a conversation between an organ and and me. So I was trying to like read the audio book, and they were just sort of sort of annoying me and sort of with their with their facts. And so, so did you get I mean, to cast uh, the organs? Yeah, we got to cast the organs. Yeah, was, which was amazing. So like Sandy Toxfig is the is the the brain, and uh, we had. Uh, Reese Shearsmith as an evil German, Mark Gatiss as Dracula for the for the blood chapter, and uh, Lolly Adafopi's in there, and Joe Wilkinson and Tom Allen and Lucy Montgomery and all sorts of brilliant people. So um, uh, sort of end up getting quite carried away with that. I don't know how big a market kids audiobooks are. I suspect not as big as adult, but um, well, this because... thirty-five-year-old wants one. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, but um, yeah, I, th- I think they're an important bit of publishing. I've, I've never been very good at reading on screen. So I'm not a sort of, I'm not a kindly person, but audio books and good old fashioned um, chop down trees. <laughs> did you listen to books on tape, like on long car journeys when you were little or anything like that? I did. Yeah. Well, I've not really thought about that. Uh, but yeah, the Just William tapes we had. We had, uh, there was a lot of P.G. Woodhouse, um, who sort of loomed weirdly big in my, in my life, because I went to the same school as him in different years, but um, <laughs> they were, it was like their, it was their big success. So everything that could be, uh, could be named after P.G. Woodhouse was named after P.G. Woodhouse, which I thought was slightly unfair on Raymond, uh, Raymond Chandler, who also went there, but anyway. That's a, a triumph for comedy. Although, I mean, I love P.G. Woodhouse, and I think those books are so funny. But if you're, everything is happening in the Woodhouse Memorial Hall, or, you know, it's P.G. Yeah. Woodhouse there, I can imagine how you might feel a little bit like, must everything be? It might put you off Jeeves. <laughs> yeah, no, I do, no that, and here's... He is one of the great comedy writers, of course. Comedy changes, doesn't it, a bit? Like, yeah, you were saying about Jane Austen, the stuff that are described as Shakespeare comedies, they do really have to explain to you where the, where the jokes are. <laughs> uh, I was researching for my kid's book, Shakespeare fart jokes, because <laughs> um, something about like, the oldest joke ever discovered by historians was some sort of fart joke in the like, ancient Sumerian or whatever it was. And then I, was, I just looked up, you know, this ended up not going in the book, but um, the jokes that Shakespeare had told, I, you know, it did need a good explanation 
of why this line was a fart joke. I'm sure Shakespeare was excellent at what he did, but uh, I don't rate his gags. Well, I suppose it's a reminder as well, isn't it, that he was very much kind of playing to the gallery, that he wasn't... I mean, it. I find it cheering that the jokes might not work now, but he wasn't above a fart joke, that the the function of a fart joke, it was as necessary then as it is today. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm certainly, I'm certainly uh, never going to do down the fart joke. Then, I mean, I feel a little bit that way. Maybe I'm being a millennial snowflake, but I think about, you know, Martin Amos and how when I was younger, I loved how sort of thrillingly nasty he was. And his comedy was just so brutal and cruel. And now it, it's a bit much. I'm like, the real world <laughs> is horrible enough without this. Yeah. Yeah, good point. I'd say it's a good point. I've never read any Martin Amis, so I'll I'll I'm just I'm just gonna nod. Buckle up for cruel jokes. <laughs> hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We'll be back to Adam soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. On Turpentine Lane by Eleanor Lippman is the story of Faith Frankel, a Brooklyn transplant who's just returned to her suburban hometown to buy the perfect bargain home. And her sweet, ordered world gets weird when she learns some unexpected facts about the previous occupants. This is an exceptionally sophisticated rom-com. Faith's world is filled with people who are impossible not to love, like and recognise. It's a salted caramel treat of a book. Undeniably cosy, but witty, sharp and wry enough to stop your teeth from falling out. On Turpentine Lane by Eleanor Lippman is out now. Now, back to Adam. What would you most like to read that you've not got round to yet? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, there's just so much. Ideally, I want people to stop writing books for a while so we can all catch up. Uh, God, yes. But you see these <laughs> hundreds, you know, books to read before you die lists. I'm like, oh, God, I've read, I've read two of them. And one of those was The Very Hungry Caterpillar or whatever. <laughs> and uh, so there's a, I'll discover, you know, a, a, an author... 
and then be like, oh no, they've written seven books. How am I gonna, <laughs> how am I gonna ever catch up with all of, uh, all of, all of that? I'll be re-reminded of an author. And then uh, Jonathan Coe, I, I read What a Carve Up years ago, and then uh, delighted to Twitter threw up that he, there was a there was a recent book and I ordered it and it's on my bedside table and I turned the flap and of course he's written so that's all, that's added to the list as well. I, lo- I would say that his book The House of Sleep is one of my favourites and I don't know if it would be in any way medically interesting for you or a busman's holiday but it's fair and I have no idea how accurate it is I believed it all. And it's about different characters and the effect that their sort of insomnia or sleepfulness plays in their lives. And it's really, it's it's probably his least funny book, but it is very funny in places. And it's very sort of <sighs> scathing about people. It's just, it's really, really moving and very emotionally resonant. It's really stayed with me. And I loved Roger Carbuff and I loved The Rotters Club, but it's just something yeah. of it. But it, I, I would say it's a very, like, a pretty quick read as well. I, I was sort of, I remember being quite surprised by, because the cover is, I think, it's like a blue-grey photo of a bed and it looks a bit sort of, you know, laconic and like, oh, this isn't going to be thrills a minute. And then what, when <laughs> you look up, you're like, oh, I've read 10 chapters without realising. Yeah, well, you made the mistake of judging a book by its cover. <gasps> That's mm. the second sin after reading on the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I read the, I read the uh, Matthew Walker book, Why We Sleep, Oh, I have not, but um, I would like to. The thesis of the book is we're not sleeping enough and it's really, really important we sleep and it's just as important as exercising or eating correctly or breathing and stuff like that. That was that was interesting. So yeah, that was uh, hadn't really thought about sleep much before that. So, yeah, I'll put that I'll put that on the put that on the list. Does he tell you how to sleep if you're not sleeping? Because I feel like it's like going into a room and someone's saying, Oh, you look tired. Like, Thanks. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a, there is a bit, there is a bit of that. Um, but I've always slept well. I sleep with drone-in radio on in the background. Oh, what station? So it's mostly LBC. And, Blimey. Uh, yeah, so I so I wake up really really right wing and angry. <laughs> uh, but it's, um, no, I've I've or you know it's or, or, or five live or radio four or talk sport or just something. So there's some. So there's some noise and I've done this since I was about 12 or 13 when I used to sleep with a, a little battery radio, sort of beige radio thing uh, under the covers next to my ear, which I wasn't, my parents banned me from doing because I was getting through so many batteries. So, um, and my, um, my husband used to hate it. And then I was originally banned from having the radio on, which meant I couldn't sleep. And then he bought me a pillow that you plug in to the to the radio and it plays it just in your pillow. So so only you can hear it. Uh, but now he's given up and it's just always on in the background and he's got used to it too. Oh, I'm glad you said that because I really wanted to ask about how, how that sort of thing affects a marriage. <laughs> but this pillow sounds like a magical device. I can't believe that mm. such a thing exists. Yeah, it's really good. And somehow it's not, or maybe I'm just not the princess in the pea, but <laughs> I couldn't feel any sort of machinery in it. It just feels like a, just feels like a normal pillow. I wanted to ask you if you had any thoughts about, you know, is reading good for our mental health? I think it is. I do feel a bit calmer and more relaxed, depending on the book. I think if it's Angie McNabb, possibly not. I think you need a way of going into standby mode of how whatever it is, whether it's running 
or reading, or for me, it's playing the piano, because I like playing the piano, but I'm not good enough at it. That, so, so it requires 100% of my processing power to concentrate on playing the piano, which means I can't worry about all of my horrible deadlines, all the stuff I haven't done and all the various things happening in my life. Um, so while I'm playing the piano, that, that totally looks after me. Um, and reading plays uh, a similar role. Often for me, reading stressful though, if I'm reading it because I've got to read it because um, I'm reviewing it, or someone wants me to quote for it or something like that, then I'm reading it. I'm not totally immersed in the world. I'm also thinking about, um, you know, what, what sensible things I can say about it. Um, but for people who love reading, reading is, 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 the, is the perfect thing to do. And for people who don't yet love reading, it may well be the thing that they need to do. Oh, but that is so stressful, though, because how on earth can you lose yourself in a book when you've got this constant external frame of I must harvest up a quote or I must, you know, put this, put these thoughts in order. It's just it's just more work. It is. That becomes work. So um, actually, there haven't been that many books that I've read for fun recently. That's sad, isn't it? Maybe I need to maybe I need to. Uh, and what, what do you like beyond, other than funny? Do you have any qualifiers? Um, I think funny is, is, my, is my top trump. I like, um, you know, I like twisty as well. I'm not very good at clever. Um, if it's won one of the proper prizes, it's probably going to be a bit much for me. But then again, I, I don't, I'm not sure there's... I need to have any shame in that, just like there's types of music that I don't like as much as others and films that I'll watch above others. I sort of, books that make me really concentrate and then turn back some pages to work out what was going on or it's sort of, or books where everyone says it's amazing, but nothing really happens. And they say, oh no, it's not meant to, it's a character study. They're, those ones are off the oh, list. Oh God, like TV, like you've got to watch the first four seasons to really get into it. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, no, I don't. I, I watch none of those seasons. Save myself 16 hours. Have you read uh, Love Nina by Nina Stibby? Yes, I have. That's really good. And what I loved about that as well is, as you say, it's got the, the brevity. So it's, I just, I find every single line funny and so well crafted, but also it wouldn't give you piles. <laughs> not not that you're going to coming back to the whole area, but you know, if you just want to you have two minutes and you want to read something before bed that will put a smile on your face you can but also I found it quite addictive and the thing I think about a lot is at the very end and because I think she's so good in that book on you know the pretension of it and being someone who feels like she is finding literature relatively late and she's getting ready to yeah. go to university and sort of because she's not been at school there are these gaps in her knowledge, but she is really smart. And I think she's writing something for college about Carson McCullers. And the essay is geared around how Carson McCullers was sort of a miserable recluse. And then she finds this book and said it might as well be called something like Carson McCullers' Life as a fun, sociable and popular person. And so rather than change the essay, she takes the book out of the library and just hides it <laughs> so no one can check. Ah. <laughs> Now that was that was a good. I'd forgotten about that book. So maybe I've read more. Maybe I've read eleven books rather than ten. <laughs> but it is a little like I, I always go back to Adrian Mole if I'm in need of cheer. Oh yes, 
love Adrian Mole. I mean, with no offence to Samuel Pepys or Anne Frank or me, I guess, uh, far and away the best diaries ever written. Sue Townsend was just an absolute genius. And it's a book that I I reread when about about a year ago. There was a musical of it which was which was dead jolly and I really enjoyed and it made me uh, go home and be sad that I couldn't find my original copy of it but I but I ordered a I ordered a fresh one and it and it still works which is great. I mean I'd love to know I don't know if you've been asked this a lot before but if I was in a position to go around prescribing books I think all of the teenage diaries of Adrian Mole that would probably be on the list or near the top do you have any other books that you've loved that you think you'd like to like the world to read other than your own other than my own obviously the only important book <laughs> um I don't know to be honest if I know a book then probably everyone knows it because you know you know I'm not I'm I, I'd love to be much more literary literature than I am um there was a book that I read at school which I really liked I mean when I was young at school but a sort of no one who I mention it to has ever heard of, and I'm, I'm not sure if they've, they've ever read it or if it's even still in print. It was called The Phantom Tollbooth by oh. Norton Juster. It was a sort of, it's a, a sort of fantastical story about this kid called Milo in all sorts of strange worlds. And it was very funny. And I guess it was ultimately about education and the importance of learning and thinking um but it was just uh it's just just a, a real hoot and uh yeah so uh, that, that can go on my list and that's something that i read i've not read as an adult but now you said that i would quite like to i don't know if you've come across lucy mangan wrote a memoir and i think it's called bookworm a memoir of childhood reading i'm looking over at producer dale to check that i've got the title right <laughs> I've not read that, no, but uh, I do love Lucy Mangan. I think that because it's really, it's it's beautiful, but funny and very readable. And her it's really about her life as a person who just wanted everybody to go away so she could concentrate on her books. But she writes about all of those lovely childhood friends in such an evocative and comforting way. And it is like, you know, meeting all of those books that you really really loved again for the first time and it sort of reminds you of them and I think that if you wanted a comfort read and also it, it again it's written in that very sort of digestible way so you don't feel like it's dense you can sort of quite periodic I guess in the way that it goes through different stages of childhood um also I never get to recommend books to people on this podcast normally they're like here's my list um I don't <laughs> even know. oh yeah sorry <laughs> no, no no this is brilliant I'm loving it I hope you're not feeling too bamboozled by my or bombarded um Kathy Rensenbrink's latest book Dear Reader which I can't shut up about one of the things I adore about that is that Kathy is very involved in adult literacy and I love her writing style so much and she's got this incredibly funny smart and just a really like pure clear way of looking at things and describing things but it is written to be really gripping and really sort of easy to read but not in a way where you think oh this is a bit simple it's more a sort of 
an energy and a, a pacing of it. Great. Yeah, well, I, I, I own that book, um, but I haven't read it yet. But I really, really loved uh, The Last Act of Love, mm. her first book, uh, which was just beautifully written, but very tragic about the, the death of her uh, her brother many years ago. And uh, in fact, Kathy was the first person who ever interviewed me about uh, my writing, about my, um, me, I think it was in the, the Chiswick Book Festival three or four years ago. And then after that, she wrote a manual for heartache, which is a, I mean, it's a book that I've, I've bought as gifts half a dozen times because it's just, she, I mean, she writes so wonderfully and powerfully and it's a manual for heartache is exactly what it says on the tin and uh, it's, a, it's a great book so yeah I should I should have read to read it by now because I know it's going to be good but sometimes I think that if you know you're going to love something you almost want to save it for pudding if you know you've got there are books you've got to read <laughs> books you want to read but I do I yeah. mean what always stuns me about Kathy and how clever and kind she is and I'm I'm a little bit in love with her I'm a very big big fan of her and her work um she writes about these incredibly sad things but she writes about being angry and confused and numb and the shock of you know that you will the most awful thing you can think of will happen and you will find something funny and then you'll be furious with yourself for finding anything funny in this new universe just the the humanness of it. I think he's one of the most human writers I know. Hard agree, hard agree. That's um, and one of the most honest writers. Mm. You really feel you know her, having read her books, and that's job done, isn't it? Because it's hard. Lots of people say, "Oh, you know, writing it must be like therapy." I'm like, well, no, not Rick. To present your <laughs> experiences in a way that is engaging and entertaining, and interesting. Let alone anything more profound than that you know it, you're not just burbling it up it's it is work uh, no it is it is work I think writing can be therapy and I think I think it sorted me out a bit um the way my first book ends is about the reason I left the medical profession and which was a you know a bad day at work on, on, on labor ward and when you're on labor ward the bad days are really quite horrible and it was you know more than I could deal with and I ended up leaving. The culture amongst doctors is one that you don't talk about this kind of thing to the extent that when it was published I was getting email after email from doctors saying they thought they were the first person who'd ever cried in the toilet or cried in the locker room and things. It's, it's that sort of deeply baked into what it means to be a doctor. And I hadn't talked about this thing that had happened. Uh, it hadn't happened to me, it had happened to, you know, a patient and their family, but, you know, I'd been a bit of collateral damage to that and it had had its impact on me. Um, I hadn't, you know, my parents didn't know why I'd left medicine. My friends didn't know partner didn't know and then it wasn't I'm not sure if it was therapeutic writing it down and having it published and just sort of it was sort of 
the editing process was sort of relatively clinical. I think editing is, um, you know, it's just, you know, should we move that comma and does that need double inverted commas or single? And that's is that sort of stuff. That was more like presenting it. But then being interviewed about it to a certain extent, but more than that, getting up on on stage, which I've now done many hundreds of times and reading it out has been very beneficial to me. In fact, I used to, I mean, I don't know if it's PTSD um, because I, you know, I sort of slightly skimmed my psychiatry lectures, um, but it's, it's certainly post-traumatic something. I used to regularly wake up back in the operating theatre where it happened with my heart going at 200 beats a minute and I'd be in a cold sweat and I'd jolt fully upright. And that doesn't happen anymore. So something's happened to those demons since the book has been published and since I've been talking about it. Um, but and I think... I think that it's I think that it has helped me. I wonder whether any part of that is knowing that being able to share something so terrifying and painful has a function that ultimately what was so 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 hard for you has actually changed things for so many people on a personal level and even you know gone so far as to hopefully start changing the minds of people who are in a position to to improve things for the doctors and for the NHS and for medicine that it's not it's a, a little bit Mr Rogers I think you know if it's human it's manageable if it's manageable it's mentionable but I've said this before I love reading because we we find ourselves and we escape ourselves at the same time and I think it you know so many people have found themselves and been so comforted and relieved to meet themselves either in a a literal way with experiences that were very, very close to what you went through or anyone who has just experienced any kind of pain and shame and anxiety and has been comforted to have company. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very that's very well put and very interesting. I hadn't really thought of things like, like that. Yeah, you're very good at your job. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I was thinking about that a lot in the, in the pandemic. I think that what we all want to do is help and we can't help in the ways that we're used to. Mm. I think that everyone really wants to feel useful. Everyone really wants to feel they have a function and it's harder to find those things. And so, and that's, I think what so much of what motivates us as humans. And when I need to look for hope to find that we're, you know, we're good and decent and we're not sort of terrible, selfish beasts that whether it actually works or not, and actually thinking about what's happening politically at the moment, and there are lots of um, arguments against this, but also in some small way, we're all trying to invent a reason to be needed. Yeah, I think I felt that very acutely, having previously been in a job where I was definitely useful. That's uncontroversial if you're if you're on the front line and you're doing cesarean sections. That's you know that's that's pretty a game society useful. To suddenly being um, you know, writing TV shows and now books and things. And obviously the arts have a measurable value, but it's a few, it's a few notches away from saving lives. 
And I didn't really feel that particularly deeply until the pandemic. And I realised what my friends and my former colleagues were still doing. And I felt a profound helplessness, which actually ended up resulting in a in pulling together a book um, of, uh, it was a hundred letters from famous people that I sort of, um, I collated um, saying basically thank you to the NHS, and it's called Dear NHS, that I did to, you know, raise, to raise money for, for charity, which it did do for NHS charities predominantly. But it was also a selfish act because it gave me a way of not feeling so useless. I think we all have to be a little bit selfish, you know, or we'd, or we'd go mad. You know, we've all got egos and anxieties. It made me think of uh, two things. And what I don't, have you read ever um, How to Be Good by Nick Hornby, which might be a little too close for home because it is about a doctor? I haven't. I haven't read that for that for that reason. reason. I mean, I love Nick Hornby and I've read a lot of Nick Hornby, but it's, I mean, it's the reason that I don't watch medical dramas on telly either. I mean, I don't think you see, I think she's called Kate, the main character who is a doctor. She's always thinking, I must be a good person. I'm a doctor. You know, I dedicate my life to doing something that's useful. Mm. I must be good. I must be. But then everything her life throws up like absolutely tests that and I think that does her husband something happens and I can't remember if her husband either starts giving away all their possessions but also he starts inviting homeless people off the street to live with him and he makes everyone in the street take in a homeless person in the spare room and their children are sort of very confused and they're being quite hard work and they're sort of an impressionable age but it's as a kind of modern morality story as in you know what function do our morals have and is there natural goodness or are we all ultimately self-interested um the other one is i've just read the new zadie smith book um intimations also a a noble fundraising book and i think she her impulse and she writes about it is the same as yours where she's like well i just i felt utterly useless i what you know and i realized that being a writer is one of the most useless things you can be in the scheme of it all what can I do and she talks about the why I write essay or the why I write piece and how you know every pompous author has sort of thought about that at some point in their careers as has she and she says well really there's there's nothing more to it than something to do (laughs) (laughs) yeah no she'll be that I mean she's obviously an amazing writer done Deal. Excellent. I will promise it will take no more than, you know, a, an afternoon of your time. But she is, I think, another writer where her reputation is very sort of grand and literary. And I'm, I've am i loved her for a, a long time. And I think I loved her most of all because when I read White Chief, I think, I don't know if I got it for Christmas or something, and I thought, oh, this is one of those, like, mum and dad books where, like, read this. And, <laughs> and I was like, but this is really good. This is really sharp and thrown into the deep end of this book. Yeah, I read it when it was already a classic, which I think is one of the worst things that can happen to a to a book in terms mm. of wanting me to read it. 
but I uh, to totally agreed. It's a it's a classic because it's brilliant. What do you think is the most overrated book? What have you been excited to read or felt obliged to enjoy and just thought bugger this and given up? I used to always finish books because otherwise the book had won. <laughs> and, um, but now uh, I've got less of my life left than I had before and a longer pile of books on my on my bedside table. I don't review books if I don't like them, which means that <laughs> uh, quite often people think I'm reviewing books and I don't, but I think that's the, the best thing I can I can do. I had a, there was a book I once reviewed. I reviewed it well, but I also I'm not I didn't my writing wasn't good. I mean I it was a it was a nice review, but at, at the end I did make some criticism. And I made it in the context of a good review, and I made sure there were some good pull quotes that the publishers could take out and do what they wanted with. But um, I thought I, the, the important thing was for me to review it like I was reviewing a restaurant and I don't want people to unnecessarily spend their money if it's not the sort of thing they'd like to... And the author, you know, had a go at me on social media, told me I didn't get it. And I think I did get it and I did mean it. But it made, made me realise that I'd upset them and that wasn't what I want to do. So now if I'm reading a book, professionally inverted commas, and it's not for, for me, then I just draw a line under it. And I'm obviously not going to mention any of, any of those for, for exactly the same reason. But someone I'm probably not going to um, upset the estate of, and I think they'll probably be fine without my um, without my backing, is uh, Tolkien. And it's not that I don't like fantasy, because I do. I just don't like just don't like those books. I just can't be bothered with reading twenty pages about trees. <laughs> and um, so, um, and I know I'm meant to, and. Um, if I could be a thousandth as successful as those books were, uh, then I'd be extremely happy. But uh, not everything can be for me. And that, you know, that wasn't for me. I am with you. I often think, and obviously, you know, there are, like, as you say, he's fine. He does not need either of us. But I've had a go and I thought this feels like it was much more fun for him to write than it is for me to read. <laughs> Yeah, that's a very good description. Yeah. Um, I feel bad finishing on a um <laughs> on a Tolkien bitch. I think in fact every every one of your episodes should end uh, slagging off Tolkien. <laughs> I'm gonna bring that in, make that official podcast policy. Feature, yeah. Uh, it's been so, so lovely to talk to you. Um sorry I haven't read any books and so can't usefully contribute to your podcast. But um, I, I, I like the way it works in reverse, where you tell me what to read. <laughs> it's, it's really nice to have a conversation about the function of reading and how it shows up in people's lives. Oh, and I forgot on my list of diaries, um, uh, Bridget. Of course. Uh, who, uh, that's another wonderful book. That's another very funny book, actually. Oh, well. I can't believe <laughs> that I didn't um, think about 
Bridget when you said because I was just thinking of her um Bridget has borrowed a dress from Jude um to impress at a, it might be at the Law Society dinner and it's um evil Rebecca says um oh I see you're wearing last year's John Rachel I recognize the hem and I recognize the hem is such a brilliantly mean comic line <laughs> no amazing love it yeah and I've not, I've not read that book for years I reckon I should again I reckon it holds up it really and it's so lovely I really like think what was I doing or what am I doing today? What was Bridget doing in imaginary land yeah. in the 90s? Back on October 26th. Reread Bridget Jones, the ultimate comfort read. I yeah, know. really is. And no shame in comfort reading. No, I'm a big, big fan. It's all we have now. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Huge thanks to Adam. Kay's Anatomy is going on my Christmas list. Buy it for the people you love. Buy it for yourself and learn all about your body. And Adam's Anthology... Dear NHS, a hundred stories to say thank you is out now too. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at YBooked and if you've enjoyed this episode, it would make me incredibly happy if you could leave us a five-star review. It's the best way to help new listeners to find the podcast. Find the list of all the books mentioned by Adam at acast.com slash booked. Finally, I leave you with this from E.B. White. I get up every morning determined to both change the world and have one hell of a good time. Sometimes this makes planning my day difficult. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 